Welcome everyone to this special ATS podcast. I'm Nathan Mespin. I'm a third year pulmonary and critical care fellow at Boston University and Boston Medical Center with a special research interest in end-of-life care in the ICU. So I have the honor of introducing Dr. J. Randall Curtis, an accomplished physician and health services research scientist with a focus on optimizing goals or care conversations with patients with serious illness and end-of-life care during critical illness. He is professor of medicine at University of Washington and the director of Cambia Palliative Care Center of Excellence. He has had an indelible impact on the field of palliative care and end-of-life care in the ICU. Some of his seminal studies have been published in New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, Lancet, and other high-impact journals. He is the recipient of the 2022 American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine Lifetime Achievement Award. Additionally, he has created a network of collaborators and mentees across the nation and internationally, which again speaks to the profound impact he's had on this field. Thank you for all your contributions to the science. So we had originally thought this podcast would be about palliative care and critical care medicine, which has been Dr. Curtis's passion and area of expertise for nearly 30 years. However, we have a different podcast planned for you, one that is meant to explore and embrace humanism that is embedded within us as physicians. Today, we will hear Dr. Curtis's perspective on his diagnosis of bulbar ALS and his reflection on his career. A transcript of this podcast will be available on the ATS website. Again, thank you, Dr. Curtis, for making the time to sit with us today. <clears throat> so would you mind sharing with us how you recognize your symptoms and how you navigated the healthcare system as you were being worked up and ultimately diagnosed with bulbar ALS? I first noticed a change in my speech and some coughing with eating and drinking back in January of 2021. It was very subtle at first, but became progressively worse to the point where my wife and I both realized something was clearly wrong. I talked to a neurologist friend who ordered an MRI. When that was normal, he referred me to the neuromuscular clinic and they did an EMG in March that gave me the diagnosis of ALS. I was very lucky in that the time from symptoms to diagnosis was quite short for me, in part because my bulbar symptoms couldn't be much else and in part because I am well connected in the medical system here. For some people it can take a year or more before they are able to get a diagnosis. That is, that is very lucky that you were in that position to get that early diagnosis. Did anything surprise you going through this process and talking with your providers about it? I'm not sure I would say that anything has really surprised me. I have noticed how important it is to me that my providers care about me and who I am as a person. I always knew that was important as a physician and researcher, but it did surprise me just how important that is to me. ALS is a funny disease in terms of uncertainty. There is no uncertainty in terms of the fact that this is a progressive and terminal illness, but the time course and the order in which muscles are affected is very uncertain. That uncertainty is challenging at times. Uncertainty is an inherent part of life and I try to live in the present and enjoy what I have, but also want to be able to plan for the future, especially when it comes to my family, but also with my career. 
I am trying to limit the planning time and spend my non-planning time in the present. I would also say that I feel that the uncertainty of timing adds a special challenge for me in terms of accepting my own mortality. My friend and colleague Bobert wrote a great book about death in our culture called Death is That Man Taking Names. In that book, he likened considering your own death to looking directly at the sun. You can do it for short periods, but not for any length of time. I think there is truth to that, but I also think I'm getting better at it as time goes on. That is a very poignant lesson to take about tempering uncertainty with living in the presence. So as you alluded to a little earlier, you, you are in a unique position as a physician and researcher with expertise in goals or care conversations with patients with serious illness. Had you previously had uh, this conversation with your family and how did you broach the subject with your family and how did it go? Does being an expert make it easier? I have had this discussion with my family and I wrote an essay for John as a piece of my mind last year on the tremendous value of advanced care planning experiences I had with my mother and mother-in-law as well as for myself. Before I was diagnosed with ALS, my discussions about my own advanced care planning were very general and hypothetical since I was healthy and it was hard to predict what kind of decisions might need to be made. However, now with ALS, the types of decisions my family and I will have to make are much more predictable. It is important to focus on the values and goals and not the specific treatments. For example, if I had dementia, I would never want a peg for enteral feeding. But I have ALS and I have a peg now because my quality of life is good and it helps me keep up with my nutritional needs. I'm running five miles three times a week, exercising daily, and still skiing the double black diamond runs with my daughter, all with my <laughs> peg in place. I am pretty sure I won't want a trait for invasive mechanical ventilation, but I am not 100% sure because it may depend on how I feel about my quality of life at the time. Everyone is different, but I find it very reassuring to be able to talk with my family and my physicians about my values and goals and likely treatment preferences. I'm sure some of the reasons for that are who I am as a person and part of the reason I focused my career on palliative care. And some of the reasons also have to do with spending my career focusing on palliative care and seeing how helpful serious illness communication is when it is done well. I believe most patients do appreciate these discussions when they are done well by someone they trust. Mm -hmm. that's, that's absolutely true. So I understand from... Um, from our prior discussions, you've stepped away from clinical work. Um, are you still doing some of your research activity? And I'm sure your diagnosis of ALS has given you perspective of, on your own work. And so does that make you rethink or revisit or highlight some of your prior work? It was hard to give up clinical work because I really loved it. I loved to get to see many of my long-term clinic patients and I particularly loved attending in the ICU with the residents and the fellows and the high-functioning interprofessional team with wonderful nurses and respiratory therapists. At the same time, it was exhausting. Our approach to clinical workload has not been set up to support sustainability. 
This was true before COVID and COVID has really amplified this issue. I spent quite a bit of time working in the ICU for the first 12 months of the COVID pandemic and it was a remarkable experience. As a pulmonary and critical care physician with palliative care expertise, I felt like my skill set and experience were incredibly valuable and needed. That was rewarding, but it was also exhausting and I worry a lot about the debt of burnout that we are developing in our field. I think we will need really innovative and out-of-the-box ideas to come back from this with a healthy and robust workforce. I would also say that I am very proud of the role that I have played in promoting the importance of palliative care in pulmonary and critical care medicine. We have accomplished much as a field. When I started in the 1990s, I spent a lot of my time trying to convince my colleagues that palliative care was important in pulmonary and critical care. Now I don't have to do that at all. Even if someone in our field thought palliative care wasn't important, they wouldn't admit it because our field has come so far. At the same time, I think we have a ways to go to develop, evaluate, and implement palliative care interventions that really make a difference in the lives of patients and their families and can be widely disseminated and sustainable. Despite our progress, there is still much work to be done. That's, that's absolutely true. I, I think we don't pay enough attention to the, the huge role of palliative care in the ICU, and you've, you've done so much to help propel that. So some of the work I've done is in the realm of equity and end-of-life care, and really trying to figure out ways of engaging high-risk, underserved patients to have these conversations proactively. And so in a sense, you come at this from a very unique perspective of being a highly educated white male who is the foremost expert on the subject matter. So has this perspective given you any more ideas on how to, we can better serve our patients? I think there is a key to high quality serious illness communication that is relevant across diverse racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic groups. That key is in building rapport and trust and then in listening to patients and families. What's important to them? What do they want to talk about? What are their worries and hopes? If we can build rapport and trust so patients and families are comfortable talking with us and then we can really listen to them, I believe we can ensure diversity, equity, and inclusion in serious illness communication. Absolutely true. Yeah, the question you know, of high quality goals of care conversation largely boils down to having uh, the conversation with someone you really establish trust and rapport with. Um, and so that makes absolute sense. And so I imagine uh, your diagnosis has shaped about how you think work-life balance now and in the future. So how are you handling this balance and, and the transition away from work? I have always felt that work-life balance was important. In fact, when I was ATS president in 2009, I made work-life balance one of my key initiatives to highlight its importance. I will say, though, that having a terminal disease really allows a laser focus on this issue. Having ALS has really freed me up to focus on what is most important to me, both in my personal life and in my work life. The strange thing about this new focus is there is nothing in the pathophysiology of ALS that allows this focus. 
I truly believe I could have had this degree of focus on what is important before ALS. This has become one of my life lessons. Live every day like you have a terminal disease. I am encouraging people to really think about what is most important in their lives and focusing on that now, rather than waiting for a terminal disease. Absolutely true. Really, really know what makes you, what drives your passion and focusing on that. Which brings me to one of the questions that is always on my mind. So one of my uh, favorite studies of yours is the study on um, alteration of speech during goals of care conversation with patients uh, with limited English proficiency. One of the really seminal studies. Personally, being a son of immigrants whose parents' primary language is not English, that study really resonated with me and made me rethink the way I interact with patients and the way I interact with interpreters. So thinking back, what, what was one of your favorite studies that you really learned a lot from? the experience of conducting it? I think one of my favorite studies is a randomized trial of an ICU communication facilitator to improve outcomes for patients with critical illness and their family members. This study was published in the Blue Journal in 2016. The facilitator was a nurse or social worker trained to identify family members' communication needs and help the ICU team meet those needs. The facilitators were also trained to use attachment theory to adapt communication to each family member and to use mediation to identify and mediate conflicts that arise in the ICU. The intervention was associated with reduced family symptoms of depression at six months and also a reduction in ICU length of stay for patients who died. I like this study because I think it is really important that palliative care interventions integrate well with the ICU team and that was the explicit goal of this intervention. I also like it because in qualitative interviews, we have found that family members really appreciated the facilitators, but we also found that family members who are doctors or nurses or have doctors or nurses in their family didn't feel they needed the intervention. I think that this intervention works similar to having a doctor or nurse in your family by giving the family someone they trust that can help them interpret what is happening to their loved one and communicate better with the ICU team. The other thing that we heard from family members was that although they loved having access to the facilitator in the ICU, where they really needed a facilitator was after the ICU on the acute care ward and beyond. At least in the ICU, there were a lot of clinicians around, but on acute care and beyond, they found it very hard to identify clinicians to talk with. So now we are doing a follow-up trial both in Seattle and in France to continue the facilitator for three months across the many transitions in care to provide some communication continuity. We published the protocol for this study in contemporary clinical trials last year, and both the U.S. and French trials will finish up soon. I'm really excited to see what we find. I'm very excited to see what you find as well. I, I, I completely understand that the idea of having um, a knowledgeable advocate on your, on your side. Um, I, I know from my personal experience, I, I have a family member who's seriously ill right now and I'm, you know, I get the conversations with them asking me about how I can helping as far as the knowledge aspect and just advocate on their behalf. And so that, that completely makes sense. So I know you had a trip to France uh, 
recently to enjoy kind of the finer Parisian uh, culinary delights. So anything else you're treating yourself to nowadays? I spent a year in Paris on sabbatical with my family in 2018. I worked with Elias Alley and Nancy Kentish Barnes. My wife had an art studio in central Paris in a building with 30 artists that was open to the public six days a week. My daughter, who was 14 at the time, attended an international school in Paris. It was a magical year for all of us and in many ways it is one of the highlights of my life. So we go back to Paris whenever we can. We also fell in love with Florence so have a trip planned back to there this spring. My daughter asked me about my bucket list when I was diagnosed with ALS and I realized that I have been living my bucket list. Now that I am terminally ill, I want to go back to the places and people that I love, but I don't feel like there are things that I missed. That is part of my advice for others. Live your bucket list now. That is wise advice. Uh, my wife and I are trying to plan our year of vacations and we'll see how that goes with the pandemic uh, looming in the background, but we'll definitely take some suggestions from you. <laughs> Sounds like you, you know your way around there. Uh, so I, I, I want to be cognizant of your time. So I'll ask uh, one last question, which is uh, what advice do you have for other physician scientists, uh, fellows or junior faculty about being successful in health mm -hmm. services research? I know this research realm can be fickle. Um, so I wanted to know kind of what advice do you have? I think my most important advice is to do what you love and to work with people that you really like or even learn to love. That has been the secret to my happiness with my career. I also think that mentorship is key. It is so important to pick a mentor that is a good fit for what you want to do and someone you truly like to work with. In addition, it is important to realize that no one person can meet all your mentoring needs and that it is important to have a team of mentors that you can go to for their individual strengths and expertise. Mentoring has been one of the most rewarding parts of my career. After I developed ALS, I came to the realization that my true legacy is my mentees. When I used to think about my legacy in terms of grants and publications, I found it stressful to think about because it is a bottomless pit. But now thinking about my legacy in terms of my mentees makes me very happy and reminds me what a rich career I have had. Absolutely. I, I, I understand you have a plethora of mentees that have really gone, gone on to have, you know, a lot of um, research production. So. So absolutely. Um, so thank you again, Dr. Curtis. Thank you so much. Tea was fun for me. Thank you so much for, for doing this. We, we're absolutely thrilled to hear that you were able to make some time uh, for us.